Welcome back to another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast. This week is with cinematographer Oren Soffer. Great talk, especially after a few weeks of sitting down with people who are more on the producing side, people who are more on the business side. You know, straight up, we speak about cinematography. And it's cool. I, I, I think in the history of the podcast, this is probably one of the more pure conversations about a specific craft. And at times talking about the gear of it, but not as heavily, I think talking about really the mental aspects of a career in in this role, but also what you're going through in terms of thinking about what you're going to do on set, how you want to behave on set, how you want to think about your type of aesthetic and what kind of changes from job to job and what stays the same. And if you're going to be making those types of decisions, um, how that is going to impact things on a macro level in terms of what you start to become known for. And if you're comfortable with that, as, as long as you are cognizant and aware of that. And so that whole conversation with Oren is fantastic. I think he's, um, I can, you can kind of understand what it might be like to be on a set with him. I think very warm, very open, very thoughtful, and I think that that kind of plays into what he said is the most important thing for him, the thing that he likes the most in terms of the relationship that he has with the director and the collaboration of that. I think it's quite clear just in terms of how he handled the conversation that the dude is a collaborator, um, either in conversation with what we had for the episode, but also I could see that in terms of uh, making art with the guy. So that's awesome. Um, so a great episode. Really, really excited about it. Some housekeeping things. Please give us a like or a comment on iTunes. That'll help stretch the show further and um, following us on any social media you can find us at AVC pod across social media channels and uh, for any inquiries or wanting to post any ideas please hit up our producer Courtney Ryan she is Courtney at AVC pod so again this week cinematographer Oren Sofer thanks for being here I definitely liked movies a lot when I was a kid and grew up on like a pretty good movie diet and got into the actual act of filmmaking in high school. But I only really went pro, you know, halfway through film school. Really? Uh, halfway through film school? Yeah. So you went to film school and what, do you, what does it mean to... Well, what, what I mean mental is... mental shift happened? The mental shift that happened was sort of having that epiphany of like, oh, this is how the industry works. This is how like movies are actually made. You know, I think up until that point, starting from high school and kind of all the way through even like the first couple years of film school. Yeah. Definitely had that like very naive, you know, blissfully ignorant kind of mindset of like... Oh, for Filmmaking sure. Filmmaking is this mystical, magical thing that just happens magically. And but I, even with that thought, you like committed to going to film school. True. Yes. Um, but with the I, intent of being in film, right? Or yes, but I didn't know exactly what I was getting into. Like I didn't know I would what it meant to do it professionally Did when I know? went into film school. I don't think anyone does, and people who say they do are kidding well. Themselves. I'll debate that because what I see nowadays that I'm very you know jealous of. Yeah. Is that because that Vimeo and YouTube and film supply and like all these and Instagram and all these platforms and websites exist. Yeah. People are exposed to professional filmmaking at a I much younger that. age. You yeah. know, so there are kids nowadays, some of whom have like reached out to me over time and like I've worked with them. I brought them on sets. It's like 18 year old, 19 year old kids who know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly how they're strategizing their career, who to meet, who to talk to, what to do. They know all this stuff about like cameras and lenses and anamorphic and film techniques and all these things that like yeah. I mean when I was in high school not to be like that crotchety old man on the porch go for it though here's your soapbox I, I will be the crotchety old man on the porch as I often am yeah <laughs> when I was in high school we shot on our school our high school had three like Sony mini DV cameras not even like the pro ones like yeah. very prosumer little handy cams yeah. and like that's what we had and in my brain that was always so interconnected with what actual films were and yet so obviously technically removed mm -hmm. but I could never really pinpoint why yeah you know like we'd throw up that camera and I'd be like I don't understand why we don't have shallow depth of field like, yeah I didn't yeah, get yeah, the, yeah. how that worked because nobody told me and because this information wasn't readily available and because this was like 2004 and YouTube did not exist much less Vimeo or any other platform mm -hmm. so oh i owned a you know what elitist mean? adapter yeah exactly so yeah. so i think by the time my my camera was kitted out it must have been three feet long exactly so so yeah i think um yes i did get into it fairly early on like yeah. around high school but and you I were didn't... in you were in israel i was in israel at, at that time yes how and you moved back to israel when you were 10 yeah it was kind of a back until... and forth uh, type situation so we moved there when i was 10 and stayed was, there until uh, until college i was curious 
curious if anything about just living in a different country, living in a different culture, if that impacted your interest in film in general, or if you feel like they approach the craft differently. Is there anything that you've known, you've come to understand perspective wise that it had anything to do with kind of how it morphed or how you evolved through that versus being here, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think as a filmmaker and as an artist, it's important to have kind of a variety of exotic experiences in your life um and to well sort of put. build yeah your your kind of database of ideas and concepts and things like that um built out you know out of multiple cultures and sources and and things like that so on in that regard yes i do think it was a good thing and especially going to film school being an international student and kind of having that outsider perspective or whatever you want to call it like not being you know your average 18 year old who's just moving away from home but for you the first felt time. that like viscerally right uh, or no I did, but and then the flip side of that is I will say like I even while living in Israel and being in high school there and kind of getting into film, it was always very American oriented. Like I was watching a lot of American movies and kind of always was knew that in the back than of my your mind. Friends? Um, no, no, my friends were into the same stuff. Hmm. We were all very kind of, uh, and by American, I mean Western. It's like, yeah, yeah. We were watching stuff from the UK, from America, from Europe, basically not strictly Israeli cinema, which is a very small and. I was going to say, I don't know if there's a lot of opportunity to watch much of that. No, uh, there is not. There is a a pretty robust industry for a country of 8 million people. Yeah, no, definitely. But it's a country of 8 million people. So there's only so much yeah. content that one can create and consume. And there's some really good stuff. There's some really good Israeli films and TV shows. They've been getting into like original TV and a lot of adaptations like In Treatment was an yes. Israeli show. Yes. And so was Homeland. And those yeah. have all been adapted and stuff like that. So there is content. But I always kind of knew even in high school, like I'm going to move back to the States and, yeah. and pursue this there. Like I want to be in the filmmaking world at large and not in this small slice. Well, for sure. Especially <laughs> if you're viewing it with a bigger mindset of wanting to really make a career of it but you but I guess you were saying that you had some shift halfway through but did you go into NYU knowing cinematography was your thing no uh I went into NYU pretty much like everyone else you know they kind of uh, got us all in a room week one and they sort of ask like who wants to be a writer director and everybody raises their hand like the entire room and then you look around it's 250 people in each graduating class and you look around and you're like uh most of these people are not going to be directors but they all want to right now but eventually well, everyone finds their niche. From, like, I, I feel like this exact moment has come up in a bunch of episodes. Yeah. A lot of that's just because no one really knows the other roles. No. Right? Like, well, who's, yeah. like who's like coming to NYU Tish and being like, you know what? Production design. It's been my dream since I was 12. Like, yes. I, I don't very think, few people. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I also think that most people don't know what directing entails. Uh, yes, you know, and it's the, the same. It's the same. It's yeah, coming yeah. from the same place. And then they get into it, and that was that epiphany moment that I had halfway like, through. Halfway through, where I realized, like, okay, this is what so directing cinematography is. was part of that epiphany, and cinematography was part of that epiphany where I had realized that in all of my amateur directing work up until that point, yeah, I was very camera focused. I was very focused on where the camera's going and and the lighting. And I was basically doing the cinematography without knowing that that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, and really kind of committed to it about a year into film school, pretty much. That's when I realized. And I still directed. I directed a thesis film while I was there. I mean, it's beneficial to do that kind of thing, especially early on. Oh, yeah. Even for a cinematographer, just to understand. Absolutely. I think especially realizing that like all the things that the directors you're working with now what they have to be dealing with and what they're going through so that you know how to facilitate as best you can oh yeah that it, whole, it, that it, whole thing. it was incredibly um helpful and and informative and also uh informs my work to this day like working with directors i find is my favorite part of the job is mm. is collaborating with a director and like kind of creating the vision overall so i will always offer myself up to directors like if they want to consult about blocking if they want to consult about editing all that stuff i feel like that's part of my job job too well i mean it's funny everyone throws the term dp around without thinking about what the d that there's a d in like a director is a part of there's that there's a d in it yeah bingo (laughs) there is a lot of d in cinematography you know what you lead with the d you lead with yes unfortunately in terms of like running that department (laughs) and running that mindset and you know 
you're directing the that whole aspect of it. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's you're you're basically. I like to look at it really as like I take very seriously the role as like the director's right hand. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and and especially to allow the director, especially in narrative stuff. But I mean, working with talent applies across all disciplines: narrative, documentary, commercial. It's all dealing with talent and on set that's really the director's realm and yes. i want to empower them to do that right um so yeah in that regard it's sort of like taking charge of over everything else and and just being a soundboard and being a collaborator and like being there for them like yeah, I, that's I, what gets your juices going exactly and yeah. i i i've spoken to directors in the past who have been kind of eager to explore that relationship and they've said like oh i've worked with dps in the past who kind of just set up the lighting and do the camera stuff and that's crazy to me that yeah, is, I don't understand that absolutely either. crazy I, to me. I love the collaboration yeah. aspect of it. Because without that, it's, I don't know, kind of becomes just a job. Yeah, and then, I mean, why would we get into this if we just wanted a job? Like, yeah, it's long no, hours, the choir on that. tiring, it's, it's, it's <laughs> travel all the time, you're on airplanes and exhausted. It's like, why would we, why would mm. we choose this if yeah. it wasn't because we had this inexplicable love for it? Yes. And all of it, for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? Not just your crap, but the, the bigger whole that you're just exactly. one part of. Yeah. Um, what were you doing with Reed, Mar- exactly um well i know that happened during school it happened during school and yeah i mean basically reed came in to kind of guest lecture because she went to nyu right years before mm-hmm. asc cinematographer for those who don't know yes uh instagram famous shoots a bunch of stuff she actually directs mostly now yeah which is cool yeah interesting yeah she's been she directed a, a a narrative and she has done a few episodes on some tv shows lately mm-hmm. and she's doing another feature this year yeah, yeah so yeah i mean she basically came into guest lecture this was sophomore year and i knew who she was because by that point i was a pretty big kind of cinematography nerd yeah and follower of the alumni of the school. And uh, so I stuck around afterwards and just chatted with her. And she was shooting like a pickup day for Kill Your Darlings the following week. And basically was like, want to come? So I said, uh, let me think about it for a second Uh, and get back to you. Um, And (laughs) yeah, you know, you don't want to seem... Was she ASC at this point? You don't want to seem too eager. No, this was before... This was before any of that. Cool. Um, this was before a ton of people knew who she was. Like this was nice. still, I think the biggest thing she had shot at that point was the documentary. Uh, what is it? Shut Up and Play the Hits. Oh, right. The LCD Sound System documentary yep. was yep. sort of the highest profile thing she had still shot. Still super high profile. Oh, absolutely. And it turned into more than just day on set. Yeah, I ended up doing two more features with her. Not the full run. I only did a couple weeks, but uh, but it was good. Good Takeaways from that, I gotta believe. Yeah, I mean that was really the the real epiphany moment of like this. So this was the summer. Yeah, being in Reed's camera department, I could see where the uh, yes, (laughs) (laughs) where the epiphany epiphany could happen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it was really my first time on a professional set at all. Yeah, up until that point, it was just student sets. I mean, freshman and sophomore year, you do a lot of work. Quite eye opening. It was, and it was it was really just educational because it's Mm -hmm. sadly the kind of experience that like film school doesn't give you you know they encourage which is great but how could they at a certain point Uh, yeah I mean one could one could argue that they could develop a very robust internship program working with local productions and kind of that's true no you're right but but we don't have to go into I was only thinking about student films being no yes student films will always be student films the internship thing NYU does have a robust internship program that's mostly for office positions which is great especially for directors people who are trying to go into that producing and stuff but yeah they don't crew internships i've always said should be like a big thing and uh you kind of just have to do it on your own which we did you know obviously you go and talk to reed when she comes in and speaks and there's your crew internship you know it's (laughs) done uh it's as simple as that so uh yeah so so i did two other films with her over the course of the following two years um it was just during the summer primary things you feel like you learned well, first, like from a purely because when did when did you get the ASC Gordon Willis Award thing? Oh yeah, that was uh, only nominated. I didn't get it. Ah, but <laughs> it was an honor to be nominated. It sure was. It, it was. It was. Come it on. was really fun. It was really fun. And uh, yeah, that was at the end, at the tail end of school. So exactly though. So like, what were you picking up from Reed's set that I would assume started to apply to your? Yeah, early yeah. Stuff? I mean, you know, obviously there is a bit of a budget gap. 
between no between Reed sets and student films. Uh-huh. But what I really learned from those, besides besides just watching her and and her team work, and and really just the crew overall, yeah, um, and see how they conduct themselves. Like my friends and I, other friends who had interned on other films, and like also been very passionate about kind of pursuing professional opportunities. Yeah, we really took that to heart and started trying to run our student sets as professionally as possible. No, that's awesome. Yeah. Um. So that was one part of it. The benefits and, are that are kind of almost intangible in ways. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when the set's running well, you don't even realize, you know, you're getting more shots in your day and all yeah, sorts of stuff. Like, True morale's higher. What a shocking concept, right? <laughs> like run run your sets organized and professional and, you know, have everybody know what they're doing and have clear-cut organized crew positions and treat it like a hierarchy like it is in the professional world and you get better results and things run smoothly and it's all, it's just so much better. So we really took that to heart and uh, yeah, and then obviously I mean, there's no one specific thing that sure. I took from from the work itself no, from I'm, watching her work. No, but that answer alone is speaking volumes. Yeah, right? I think that was the biggest takeaway at the time. Makes sense. Yeah, and then also I think what I didn't realize at the time is how much that prepared me for, you know, jumping into the professional world after graduation. Yeah, because what happened then? Well, uh, it was a pretty gradual transition, but basically from then until now, just started taking whatever DP opportunities came across. And I really wanted to focus on DPing and not, you know, pursue another crew position or something. So uh, when you first got out, was there any particular plan or strategy for how you were going to or how you did uh, move your way? Yeah, yeah. I I had a strategy that sort of um, also revealed itself as time went along um, and kind of honed itself Mm -hmm. into what it is today. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was it was a little bit of a crapshoot at first. I mean, when you get right out again, because I had committed to just pursuing DP opportunities and not uh, other stuff. You just wanted to do narrative like you were very much I'm making films and well i i wanted to do commercial stuff too i mean i just wanted to shoot anything yeah. pretty much it weirdly ended up you being a purist of any kind no no and i'm still, still i'm still not but yeah. um i do see them as two very separate things they but, ser- yeah, certainly, yeah. Certainly. uh but um yeah when i just got out it did end up being quite a few narrative opportunities just because what i was doing was basically checking mandy mm-hmm. and a little bit of craigslist but that sort of dried up like you have to sift through a lot of crap in order to get to the good well, stuff also, times were different how long ago was this um, this wasn't that long ago. It was, uh, let's see. It was 2013. So, oh. uh, end of 2013. Yeah, four years ago. Yeah. So, I think Mandy's pretty much still the same. Like, there's still good opportunities there. There was a lot of um, student projects. I mean, I did stuff for SVA students and um, some NIFA stuff, Building some Columbia room. stuff. Yeah, and it ended up being mostly narrative stuff, but like pretty smaller, low-budget projects and so on. And, and yeah, was one thing... Was a, there a breakthrough type of project? I don't think so. I mean, I did shoot a few projects last year that felt like they were really kind of really big steps up what were those why did they feel that way um just in terms of the well two things one how they turned out which is a big factor yes because (laughs) in those early years it's really really tricky to work on something that actually ends up turning out really well just by nature i mean unless you you get lucky you know well i try to define it as objectively as possible and just like as a viewer you know, I try yeah, to like separate the myself. Of the film, not just the yeah. I'm talking about the totality talking, of the film. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the totality of the final product of uh, that you've shot. Like it has nothing to do with your work. I mean, as a DP, it's totally natural and good to constantly be judging your own work and evolving it and so on and growing and all of that. That's great. But on a separate plane, there is sort of like the project as a whole and how well that turns out, how well it all coalesces together, how well the director's vision came through and the performances and the editing and mm-hmm. all the stuff that's out of your hands yeah. really affects the future of the project and sort of, you know, its influence on your career yeah, as well. Yeah, it's you know? crazy in that yeah. sense. So last year was basically just the point where I reached that projects that I had worked on turned out well, mm. you know? Uh, yeah, but you felt that your that your work prior to that had been visually. When, when did you start feeling like you were actually achieving what you were hoping for? Yeah, I think that that started sort of in the last year in film school. Really? Uh, yeah, like I still have some projects on my website that are student from films then. that I shot from that time yeah. that that I'm still proud of the work. Obviously, like I said before, like you're always learning from your own work and, you know, mm. it's never... Oh, no, no. It, yeah. The evolution is going to keep going. But you, exactly. but in terms of having your 
execution was actually satisfactory to what you had in your own mind going into it. Exactly. That, that started happening as early as the senior year. Yeah, it was a senior year in school. Uh, there were a few projects that I did then that I thought turned out, you know, pretty accurately to the director's vision and sort of what their goals were along, along with mine. Um, well, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks. I mean, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's good to look back and sort of judge your work on that level as well have to yeah and not not always on a technical level because i think people get bogged down on that a mm. lot of times uh, expand on that well i think that a lot of people are very self-critical about their work technically mm. which like i said before i think is fair i obviously do this all the time yeah. i mean there isn't a single project that i've shot that i think is a masterpiece and i don't think that will ever be the case because the minute you're fully satisfied with what you're doing then like why why keep doing it if, yeah, if yeah. you've attained perfection you know, you should just quit while you're ahead, but that'll never happen. So instead, I really just like to look at the technical side of things as as a learning curve. And really, it's like it's an evolution. And each subsequent project, you know, you set different goals for yourself technically and try to hit them and like just slowly grow your arsenal of experience and expertise. And then on the other side of yeah, that, what is the other side of technical? Well, so the other side of that is how did my work as a DP line up with the expectations of the project going in with my expectations, with the director's expectations and desires and all that stuff. So what, that's the second other side aspects, of it. What other things are in that equation besides technical? Oh, well, so many, you know, like, Hit me. uh, <laughs> Well, this is now we're talking about cinematography as an expressive art form, not as a technical art form. Yeah. And so what we're talking about is like going through a script breakdown with the director and tracing the emotional development of the character mm. and coming up with cinematographic techniques that you think will express that emotional development. Right. Um, and also creating shots and camera movements and setups that set a certain tone and pace that you, when you're on set, don't necessarily know how it'll all cut together, but you hope that you'll get the feeling or emotion or rhythm that you're after. Yeah. Right. So these are all the things that are non-technical that I talk about with directors before going into a project. Right. So those are the goals we set for ourselves. So those things might go well, but technically, like those things might out perform the technical aspects and you need to be like open-minded about that as progress is that what you're getting at? 100 percent, especially in narrative work yeah. um in narrative most like more so in narrative work more so in narrative absolutely i think yeah commercial work sort of comes with this preconceived expectation of technical proficiency which is fair because you're selling a well, product need, yeah and they need to be like technically perfect yeah, exactly. Because you're selling a product for a company that has a very specific and technical expectation of how that product is portrayed, right? Yeah. So that's the number one. Um, there isn't as much unless you're shooting a commercial that is basically a narrative, of which there are a few. Yeah, that doesn't um, None that I've shot, but hopefully one day. In a narrative, though, the story and rhythm and pacing and character and emotion is what drives it and not the technical aspects. So you could very much end up in a situation which I have had happen on pretty much every narrative film I've shot in which the lighting isn't perfect because of all sorts of factors of timing and schedule that you didn't have time to really nail it down. Yeah. That focus is missed a little bit on a couple of shots. Well, also, it's funny because like that, that ends up being also not what is prioritized necessarily in a lower budget narrative. No. Versus a commercial where that's like highest on the list. Well, exactly. Because when you're in a lower budget narrative situation and lower budget narrative could still be like a $1.5 million movie. Yes, it could. I mean, you know, Especially ask, if it's a long feature shoot. Well, know. exactly. So like ask, uh, ask James Laxton yeah. and he'll be the first to tell you that Moonlight is full of technical quote unquote mistakes. Yeah. Or at the very least things that he doesn't feel are as refined as he would have wanted if he had double the budget, double the time, et cetera, et cetera. But he'll also be the first person to tell you that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, I think you're right. Like when you corrected the word mistake for just not as refined. Yes. Those are, that's a better synopsis of the problem. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I really don't like looking at anything as a mistake. Not because, anything that makes final cut. Oh, definitely not anything that makes final cut. Yeah. But even on set, you know, it's like you really just have to embrace whatever happens. Mm. If somebody... Well, even this is a bad example. Like if somebody falls over, if you're doing a handheld shot and somebody falls over, God forbid. Yeah. And but and and the key group's there to catch them and everybody's okay and the camera's fine, but that is technically a mistake in the shot. If a shot was supposed to be upright and is now oh, hor the, the horizontal on the ground. Yes. Okay. Oh yes, if the cameraman if the oh, DP right. is shooting a shot and fell over okay. during the shot yeah. and the camera which was supposed to be upright is now sideways on the ground. Um, I think it would be pretty easy to call that a mistake 
but you never know. <laughs> you like, know? Yeah, it might be, you it never might. know what, what happens when some crazy accident like that happens and now the camera's sideways and pointing up and yeah. who knows? Well, that was the biggest thing for me um, in terms of shooting narrative because I came from documentary first. Yeah. And then I was like ACing in the narrative world for a while. Mm-hmm. And I remember like the first time seeing, first time being on, on proper set and I didn't go to film school. Mm-hmm. So this is all after the fact, after I made a documentary at this point. And I just recall being um, kind of surprised at the fact that this realization, I was like, well, I didn't, how, how could you not have realized this before? But like when they called action, anything could have happened. Yeah. It felt and way more close. It felt so much closer documentary than I thought it would. Because I'm like, oh my God, these are two people and they could do anything. Yeah. And like we were on a New York City street. We weren't in a soundstage or whatever. And I'm like, someone could just run by. Oh, yeah. Like, you have no clue what's going to happen. And it, it, that was kind of, that actually made it way more exciting. I actually, I think I never thought that I would get into narrative. But it, the first time on set, like that was, like, oh, this is way closer to things that I'm into than I thought. Yeah. And it's been growing. So that was years ago. It's been growing since then. But that's like the kind of thing I, I even, I saw Logan this morning. And it, no, no spoiler. Yeah, like, I, I've, I've seen it too. So oh, we can talk in vague, vague, vague ter- well, terms. I, I'm, I'm not talking about anything in particular. Yeah, yeah. There's a point where he's walking out of a house holding someone. Yes. And the door catches his wife beater and like rips it. Yes. But it's not a major, like it, that. it's quite clear that that wasn't supposed to happen. But it just, it did naturally because in life, sometimes the door catches your shirt and uh-huh. you keep walking and your shirt rips. Yeah. And they kept filming and obviously that ends up being the cut in the final film and I'm just like that's so interesting like that's where the realism that moment that definitely wasn't supposed to happen every time it was happenstance exactly because like a lot of things in life happen happenstance and it's about making sure you're not fucking up that moment if you're the one holding the camera well exactly so for most narrative filmmakers and actors and I mean filmmaker in this sense is an umbrella term that's referring to everybody that's on the set right right um, are after capturing, you know, some sort of truth, even if it's scripted, it's still a pursuit of truth, especially actors. I, I, I'm, I'm finally starting to really have a grasp for that. Yeah. Saying. Yeah. Cause filmmakers love talking about, and I remember being younger feeling like this, that's, that's just a wonky bullshit term, but it's so not. Right. I'm really starting to grasp well, at, at that. And you see so few films that manage. That's the other part of that equation mm. is that when you go to the movies and watch TV, there are so few pieces that actually manage to capture that truth that it seems like this false concept because it's so rare to see that. Because And it, and it comes in moments that you don't even... Because it's like, okay, even, like, let's take the example I mentioned in Logan. It's not a big deal. No. But him going on phase and now having a ripped shirt just... If you want, you can extrapolate, well, he really cares about getting this person to safety. And he's so into the moment that he's not even realizing that his shirt is ripped. And like there, it adds layers that aren't, that you couldn't have planned on. Right. From a very small and significant thing. Oh yeah. I mean, there's so many examples of like actors mistakes that end up in movies that because the director picks the take where they messed up the line. Again, I'm doing scare quotes here because Mm. although they messed up a line and deviated from the script, that mess up says something about their character in that moment. Yeah. You know, like there's this famous one from Titanic where I don't know why I'm stuck on Titanic today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, off, I was t- off mic. He, uh, you were quoting Titanic earlier. I think I was quoting Titanic yeah. earlier no, before we started recording. Never changed. So it's just. It, no, I, no. I mean, why would that movie not be, be on, constantly on your mind? <laughs> so there's this bit where where Leo's sketching Kate Winslet, and he says like, "Sit down on the bed." I mean, couch. Like he fucks up the line. Um, but that's that's but that's, that's totally that's honest for his character at that moment because yeah. he's so flustered. Yeah, that of course James Cameron chooses that. This, this that was like take. a scene where she he, he's like drawing her naked. Right? Yes, exactly. So obviously he would be like nervous and all that. Yeah, yeah. But that wasn't in the script. Like that was just Leo mm-hmm. messed up because he was nervous around Kate Winslet. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such a genuine moment in a film that otherwise, like maybe one could Pretty argue, crafted. does not have a ton of genuine. Like it's very crafted and yeah. very perfectly executed. Perfectly executed. To a point of being sterile a little bit. But that scene is one of the warmest and most honest ones and i think it's because of that it's because you know the truth came through the screen and uh not to get all like film school pretentious hey man you you. paid the money to i did i did right i paid the money to hear this quote from film school (laughs) which is i think it was uh jean-luc godard who said that every film is a documentary because Mm. Even on a narrative film, yeah, and so he said this. He said, even on a narrative film, there is a camera capturing actors who are reading lines and standing on a set. Like that is a reality. 
yes. that exists and is being captured by a camera. That actually, it actually happened in time. Exactly. And the fact that people extrapolate some fictional context out of that while watching the movie, as far as he's concerned, is like happenstance. Yeah. But philosophically, every time you point the camera at anything, even if it's the most planned thing ever, yeah. it is documenting mm. some sort of reality that's unfolding in yeah. front of it. How do you feel like, I think that a lot of this can be fostered if the vibe on set is, it could either be like encouraging this type of freedom or not. Yeah. How do you feel being the leader of two departments at least, how do you feel like you work towards encouraging that type of atmosphere? That's a great question. Um, I think it, it requires two things. One is it does require meticulous planning, which seems counterintuitive. But if you plan, yeah, like if you, if you plan everything out in advance, do very thorough pre-production and have kind of a solid idea. So like you spend the time to think about you got your roadmap in theory, yeah, how you would do something. You have your roadmap. But the other side of that equation, of course, is once you have that roadmap, maybe like leave it on the side. And so yeah. what I like to do um, this is going to sound really weird, but uh, this is how I like to work on, on narrative films. I like to come up with a very thorough and specific shot list with the director. Really sit down, go through the script scene by scene, talk about the scenes, act them out in a space, like do whatever you can and sort of come up with, you know, a breakdown of how you would shoot the scenes. Okay. Pretty standard, Pretty standard shot list. Yep. Then what I do is I memorize the shot list to the best of my ability and then don't look at it while I'm on set. Yes. So instead, what I have is this sort of vague memory of mm. the shot list, like mm-hmm. in the back of my mind yeah, while yeah, yeah. watching a blocking rehearsal happening on set in real time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And pulling from that whenever necessary. And some of the stuff I forget, which means that it probably wasn't that memorable to but begin with. it's allowing with. for like inspiration of the things you're watching as they're actually fucking Exactly. Happening. And yeah. what ends up happening is this weird coalition of like the things that you plan for or better yet, the things that you plan for that stick in your mind. Because again, mm-hmm. the stuff yep. that I don't remember from the shot list. There's a reason. Means it wasn't memorable. You know, so that was clearly like a moot point to begin with. And that allows you to come up with something organic on the spot. But you have already analyzed the, the scene and thought about it beforehand. So that's one specific thing that I do in order to foster that environment. That's um, cool. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It's funny, like I tend to operate in the, in the same way mentally. Yeah. And for a long time, I would wonder because I would see other people that are like so meticulous and they write so much better notes technically speaking sure and i i would wonder i'm like am i not working hard enough in a certain way oh yeah and like how have you just said no i know that this is like how have you come to terms with the way that your mind works oh no yeah i mean i've definitely (laughs) that's a big question i've definitely like (laughs) psyched myself out over this stuff many many times i mean yeah like I also don't really do lighting diagrams. I like to come up with lighting organically Mm. on set, working with the gaffer. Have you been in situations that are so big that it's required because of like time and Um, not moving around? Yes, actually. Yes. This is, of course, on a case by case basis. Uh, If you have a very, very large location that requires like specialty lighting. I mean, in the past on a couple of features and shorts that I've shot, I've had to light like large ballrooms, auditoriums, Mm -hmm. um, a large night exterior, like in a field. Those require pre-planning to the point of having a diagram because you need to plan out exactly where you're going to put a lot of units which units you need because you're getting specialty stuff that's not just part of your basic lighting package at that point. Yeah. Um, and also... Budget-wise, you can't have a bunch no. of stuff to choose from. No, no. And, you, and you don't have the time to choose them on the day. No. Because in all of those cases... The setup alone is taking hours. Yeah. Your- in all of those cases on those types of big scenes, we had a pre-lighting rigging crew going yeah. in and setting all this stuff up while we're shooting other stuff. Again, just because there's no time for any of this stuff. Yeah. But to me also, the philosophical approach there is sort of like, I'm really just establishing the available light in the location as long as everything is on dimmers and kind of accessible once we're actually on the set shooting all i've really done is just set up additional motivated light sources in addition to the sun or lamps or whatever you're doing that like always yes always and that's in you can say something that strongly independent of any specific aesthetic or director or uh, yeah i think so yeah because basically the approach itself when you go in and watch a blocking rehearsal unfold and see a scene come to life in front of you mm-hmm. doesn't change even if i've pre-lit a set it doesn't mean i'm going to use that lighting exactly the way it was planned and set oh, up oh yeah no you no. know what i mean tweaking is uh is the name 
Well, exactly. And what tweaking usually involves, especially in this day and age, is like turning stuff off and not using stuff that you've set up. That's true. Anticipating that you're going to use it, but then realizing that you don't actually need as much as you rigged, for example. I would imagine, though, that this entire way forward is dependent on being the type of person that lights a room and not actors. Oh, yes, 100%. And that is is my approach every time. And Um, you think that that, you ever feel like that's not the answer for a specific style or... Sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I'm personally gravitated towards a maybe kind of people more. Are hiring you because of that look and stuff. Probably, I think it. I think it goes hand in hand. Yeah. But yeah, I personally gravitate towards a look that's very um, naturalistic and uh, motivated, lighting wise. And in those cases, I find that lighting the space is uh, is beneficial. And you know, other DPs that I've worked with, I mean, uh, that I look up to, and some that I've worked with, I mean, Reed lights the same way as well. I mean, it's, uh, it's become the thing that. It's in vogue. Like everybody's oh, doing I mean, that. Yes, like, it I, absolutely I, is. You're hard. I'm not aware of like a big name DP who everybody is, you know, stoked on that's yeah. doing it the other way. Yeah. Today. Well, there are a few that are chugging along in, in very successful careers, but maybe aren't as like hip as some of their counterparts. But yeah. I mean, I could name a few like I think Mandy Walker and John Schwartzman, mm-hmm. um, just to name a couple, are like some of the best classicist DPs working today. And by classicist, I mean what they do is... Yeah, what are you, what are you getting at there? If you watch Hidden Figures or you watch the founder or um you know uh, saving mr banks or some of john schwartzman's other films hidden figures was shot by mandy walker okay um so if you watch that film or tracks or some of her other work the lighting approach is very what some people would refer to as like old school hollywood and what yeah. i mean is there's always a key light yeah coming from somewhere it's not always motivated there are always hair lights like bright hair lights again not always motivated it feeling so 90s it does, me. it does, but I think it's still beautiful because it's appropriate for those films. Well, right, um, yeah, no, if that's the cinematic language that you're after and you're trying to make certain, you know, it's, it's cohesive from yeah. beginning to end. Yeah, like I don't think, I think that if the Bradford Young version of Hidden Figures is, <laughs> is such a different movie yeah. um, tonally, as well because the you know again these all go hand in hand and hidden figures the script and the tone and the director's vision was something that was pretty light and pretty kind of i don't want to just say dismissively something like fluffy or something like that but you know know what you're getting at though it has it ends up having a commercial feel sure it ends up having a broad broad mass appeal feel exactly very mainstream very slick very refined backlights and key lights and bright contrast ratios and that movie made a lot of money you know that's the thing so it's yeah this broad appeal yeah like the broad appeal approach has its place it's not like this is some out of vogue thing it's just a different approach well i feel like this this is leading towards career question because then the real the real thing is and you were answering this in the fact that like i just i light all of my things you know natural motivated and it's kind of like is there a point or a reason to bother in doing other things if if it's a director that calls for it or it's more like you're just kind of setting up an overall tone of how you shoot and like that's the way that you kind of do things and that you will be hired to do that versus being hired because you are open to shooting the way that it needs to be done. Like, are you a hard stance type of person with the way that you want to do things or are you, is it like an open mind thing? Cause I would imagine there are successful people in both camps, mm-hmm. but like you really have to go for either. Yeah, I, I agree. So for me personally, um, I take the hard stance approach, which I know is, a little controversial and like a little risky to say because you know it's tough it's tough as as someone who's in the early stages of their career to kind of put their foot down and say like no i'm only going to do a certain kind of work and i'm going to turn down stuff that's offered to me that doesn't line up with you know what i'm interested in visually but that is what i'm saying is that i think as a dp like you that's a better long game i gotta believe i think so too mostly just because all of the dps that i personally admire have a very distinct style like isn't that what bradford young did basically 100 yeah. percent. that's what bradford young did that's what greg frazier did reed yeah. morano rachel morrison i mean the list goes on and on um they stuck to their guns with their visual style and what interested them and started getting offers for things that lined up with that style and again this isn't you know none of these dps are imposing their style on anybody because that's the last thing you want to do no, as a no, dp it, gets, it, it flips they're getting hired because of their style exactly yeah. they are being brought on to projects because they have a distinct style that directors have identified as being appropriate for the type of work that they want to do and so it ends up being this this win-win where everything's going hand in hand and like yeah. your work advances and elevates 
the project and the projects that you start getting and getting offered elevate your work. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's like, it all just rises together as opposed to, and again, not dismissing this because like you said, this is a very valid approach that many other professionals have taken. Yeah. Is, you know, I'm a jack of all trades. I can do any style. I'm a a What do you want out of your life? What do you want out of your art? What do you want out of your career? Not necessarily fiscally, but like in terms of what you hope, you know, your oh, absolutely! Looks like at the end. Well, I mean, turning down work is not fiscally responsible <laughs> by any measure. No, but I think it's artistically responsible, and I think that it is. If you're really serious about it, and you're you're thinking about, you know, what is. Um, I mean, why are we why are we doing this? Like, why are we DPing? You know, like, what's the point of yeah. cr- of creating this stuff? Is it you what know, is it for you? Well, for me, it is partially because I have no other skill set and can't do anything else. Isn't that a funny thing? Uh, like the, yes. the, 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 the more years you like go into this, you're like, wow, I'm getting very good at this and I've lost I'm very bad at everything, everything else. else. Yes. If I, if I needed a fallback plan, I think I've passed the point of no return on that. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is like, I, you know, this sounds kind of weirdly philosophical and not really well defined. You're in the but right space yeah, for it's, that. It's, I don't know if you picked up on that, but we're philosophical. I, 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 I love it. I love it. So, um, you know, I think it's I think why people do it and I think why I do it yeah. is because you're leaving behind a legacy. I mean, this is why any artist does what they do is like they want to impact the world. Right. Yeah. By creating something that has something to say that is either some sort of self-expression or in my personal case, like I find filmmaking, especially in our current political climate, we talked about this a little bit earlier before we recorded, about how, you know, it's our responsibility as artists to use our work in order to tell stories that reflect society and that advance social issues and all that stuff. So I I believe very passionately in that. Yeah, because I was going to ask in terms of, you know, leaving a legacy, having something to say, you know, that's a big statement, uh, especially yeah. because of what does it really mean, though? Because like I, I could say the same thing and I think it would have the same validity. But I'll sit here going, I'm 10 years into doing this in one way or another. And like, what am I trying to say? And how often do you actually think about it versus you're just trying to get through a day on set? And like, how yeah. are you? How are you? Like, are you kidding? I think about on it. the ground versus like flying above this, like in the clouds. But you're not getting your day done, Dude. you know? I'm like Dewey Cox. I think about my entire life before every shooting day. No, I don't do that at all. No, you don't think about it very much uh, at all. Uh, I'm thinking about it now. I think about it during late night conversations with friends over, you know, a couple drinks or something like when you haven't been working for a couple weeks. And yeah. You just need to like unwind. And Why am I doing this? Start, yeah. yeah, start philosophically explaining why you're doing this to yourself yeah that's when i think about it that's the, true in the day-to-day i don't think about it but i think it's always there in the back of, of yeah. your mind well let me ask you this question in terms of you've established for yourself that you know it is like natural motivated stuff that's on a macro scale about your style mm. as you keep going feature to feature and bigger projects where do you feel like you are focusing on your refinement what needs to be refined and how do you go about refining it? Oh, great question. So for me, the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, again, this is a little general, but I'll come up with some specific uh, ideas in a second. Um, we'll go deeper. Is is that uh, what I want to get really better at is conceptualizing lighting and shots and camera positions and basically like the whole visual style of a film beforehand uh, in a more specific and confident way and being able to execute it closer and closer to how I envisioned it ahead of time. Conceptually with more accurate to what? To the script, to the story. So, you know, for example, like in a lot of conversations with directors, you'll come up with um, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Uh, let's say, okay, let's say this. You want to create a feeling of isolation for a character. So this scene, we're going to shoot with telephoto lenses to kind of create this feeling of separation of removal from the character. Compression of space will make the space feel like it's closing in on the character and kind of creates this feeling of claustrophobia. And also the shallower depth of field that comes from telephoto lenses also creates a sense of isolation. Okay, so that's a conceptual conversation that I have with the director in prep while reading a scene and deciding what our visual approach is. That to me is still very general. And what ends up happening is I get on set and then I have to run through the gamut of like, okay, well, I'll test out a couple of different focal lengths and like we need to find the exact camera position like, oh, maybe we find some foreground element. And, you know, it's sort of this trial and error type situation that happens a lot. You want to be more exacting. I want to be more exacting. I don't want to have the trial and error. 
Yeah. I want to be able to get on set and be like, okay, we talked about this thing. I've seen the location scout. I know exactly where I'm going to put the camera with what lens. And I already know what it's going to be. It's and, just a and, game of reps, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that's just something that comes with time. It comes with time and experience of doing things over and over again. And also just trying new situations, like being put into new scenarios that you haven't really had to face and problem solve before. And like, you know, every set that you do, even the bad ones and even the the ones that are, you know, maybe a little less meaningful to you contribute to that experience, though. That's the thing. Every single shoot contributes. So, yeah. And that's what I want to that's what I personally want to get better at is just having a more clear vision. Uh, and, and knowing how to execute it. Do you feel like a part of that comes from having a better sense of like exactly what's available to you in terms of lighting and grip? Yes. Um, I also think it has a lot to do with forging relationships with collaborators that know what's available, often better than you know, but also know kind of what you like and what you want. Yeah. And developing those relationships over time so you get to the point where like when you're on set, you know, things just kind of happen naturally. Your conversations with your gaffer end up being like a series of grunts and nods. Yeah. And then they go off and set up exactly what you want. I always wonder, you know, if I'm flipping through American Cinematographer and I see some insane set up yeah just fucking crazy and i'm and i'm like who really like you know is it that the dp was like i need this nice big overhead light to do this that and the the gaffer and the key who've been doing it forever like okay we have this idea we're gonna do this versus the dp knowing that insane scenario and dictating it and i know that it's different with each person but this is the thing that i'm thinking about now as my setups do enter into a bigger realm yes i it's daunting well from my experience it's more the former than the latter yeah so it's in in the professional world it's more often the case that the dp again because of that they're directing the photography and everything that that encompasses, mm-hmm. which on bigger sets often includes multiple cameras. Yep. So they need to think about multiple camera placements, more actors, you know, bigger uh, scenes, bigger set pieces. So we're talking about like more moving parts, more cast, more talent, more background, et cetera, et cetera. They start to think, focus less and less on the, the nitty gritty of equipment. And that does become the gaffer and key grips forte. Uh, I've worked in that kind of approach for a long time and was like really psyched out early on about that because I felt like I was being too hands off. Like this was in film school. I felt like I was taking this general approach and collaborative approach with gaffers and key grips and not being specific about units and, and that that was like a bad thing because yeah, you sort of get this feeling of like, well, I need to be very exact and precise and know exactly what I want. But with time, I definitely learned that that's not, that's normal. Like that's not weird. Well, cause it gets and, to a point like, yeah. how, you know, the same way that you're like, I'm so good at what I've been doing because it's the only thing I've been doing for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Same goes for the gaffer. Absolutely. Yeah. And you want to be hiring people who are better at gaffing than you, obviously, right? Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. so, you know, that's where that skill set comes in is like mm-hmm. they're familiar with the tools. And when you read American Cinematographer, it's interesting because in a lot of those cases, there's like gaffers and key grips and stuff like that are coming up with all these custom lighting solutions, you know, they have custom built right. things oh, and tools and so on. Part of me reads that and I'm like, that's so awesome. And then another part of me is like, my God, yeah. I if I have to come up with that. You know, no, that's just, that's it. Just it blows it, your mind. In most cases, that's all the gaffer. Like, yeah. there are definitely a lot of DPs out there who are very technical mm. and who do come up with that kind of stuff and who do have that kind of creative mind. But there's such a beautiful, like a beautifully wide variety of DP personalities that it's it's really great. Like, there's they're the kind of the dreamers. You know, like Bradford to me, when you hear Bradford Young talk about cinematography, it's like reading a good book. It's just like <laughs> he's so thoughtful about yeah. it. I've n- I don't think I've ever heard Bradford Young talk about a specific technical um, mm-hmm. concept. You know, like the most he'll talk about is what lenses he shot on. Right. But not necessarily why. Like yeah. not necessarily the technical reasons. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's amazing. Yeah. And then you have DPs like... Um, you know, there's this guy, uh, Shelly Johnson, who I love, who he's big on Instagram. Like he posts a lot of he does photos and, and, and breakdowns, breakdowns. And- he have very technical breakdowns about what they did, why and how. So I've chatted with him in the past and he is a very technical guy. Like he'll come up with lighting diagrams before the shoot. He does not yeah. really come up with stuff organically on set, which is totally fine because that obviously works for him. And that's just how his brain yeah, is the, wired. Yeah, the dude's ASC. It, it oh, well, got him. yeah. I mean, he's he's obviously a very successful <laughs> Um, a very successful DP who's been working like since the 80s. So that approach works for him and the philosophical hands-off like let's just see what happens approach 
uh, works for Bradford and there are quiet DPs and there are rambunctious DPs and there are loud mouths like me and there are yeah, it's, comfort- uh, it's comforting knowing <laughs> navel it, gazers it, you know there's everything yeah 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 it's great no it's it's cool do you have um I guess in, in terms of like wrapping up in terms of how you think you are going to go forward mm-hmm. is there some sort of plan or it's kind of the same as it's been I know that you just recently are now with Partos I did yeah yeah I recently uh, signed with Partos and um, there is a plan going forward I've definitely in the last year really coalesced you know it took it took a couple years out of school to really figure out what the strategy is that's what I was saying before yeah as I think it should yeah about how it it sort of revealed itself as time went on it's better that way I think so too I mean again some people have it super figured out early on and like kudos to them yeah true you never know yes and Talk to them in four years and see how well they suck to the plan. Fair enough. Um, but yeah, so the plan the plan right now is I'm working with Partos and we're working on developing the two prongs of my career. Um, this I mentioned before, but we can talk about it a little bit more detail now. Like for me, the commercial music video branded content world is one thing. Yep. And the narrative feature world is basically a totally separate thing. That makes sense. Um, this is like gaffing and key gripping. It's like, how you, are you dividing them in your mind mentally in terms of what, what makes them different besides the obvious or, um, is, it, or is it just the obvious? It, the obvious. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah, it, yeah. the, the approach is mm-hmm. different. The stakes are different. It's basically all stuff we've, different. yeah, we've talked about in terms of technical proficiency required Right. Who you're pleasing yes. in each one, you know, <laughs> who, who are your overlords mm-hmm. uh, in either one changes the approach a lot. So, yeah, they're two very different things. And also career wise, this is the other thing that this is what it took me a couple of years to realize is just how much separate those worlds are. Like the feature world is really run through uh, feature production companies or independent producers. There's a whole system of grants and workshops and labs in place that foster writing and directing talent that build projects within those you know frames. Yeah. Um, directors have representation as well. And so feature projects that are developed kind of go through different rounds of development with agents and with managers and all this other stuff. It's just a whole other world yeah, yeah. Of, of that. Whereas the commercial world and music video world is agencies, uh, ad agencies, music video commissioners that work with record labels, production companies, uh, and collectives that that are specifically focused on commercials and music videos, two different worlds that sometimes overlap. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, There are definitely production companies out there that do both. Your mindset in terms of dealing with both? Different. One's yeah. one's a long term. But, but you're interested in dealing with both. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The feature game is like more of a long term thing, and it's like trying to foster relationships and like plant seeds and track projects. It's just like a longer term yeah. thing. Whereas the commercial well, yeah, because when you get signed world, off for one of those projects, you're on it for what three, four, five months, depending on oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's even just getting to the point of getting signed on to one. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is like a lot of these projects are in development for a while. Yeah, and they can be starting to look at DPs like a year before they're even shooting. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one thing. But the commercial music video world is uh, music video world is very immediate. I mean, it's very week fast. to week or, you know, week to two weeks. Sometimes if you're lucky, you get two weeks. Yeah. And um, it moves very quickly. And it's a different kind of um, network of people to talk to and kind of get in touch with. But yeah, so that's really it. It's just fostering relationships. It's all about that. It's all about relationships and who you meet and who knows you and who knows someone who knows you. And, you know, you just sort of building that network over time. And um, that, yeah, that just takes time. Like in the last year, I've reached a place where enough people know who know my are. work or at least know somebody who knows me that I can get on their radar. Whereas before that, it's like you're just out of school. You're a nobody. So you do, have to kind some of work find your own. Yeah, 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 exactly. You have to find your own way. But you get there eventually. And it's it's really just all about constantly meeting people and networking and interacting with people online and in person and like any opportunity you get pretty much. Yeah, yeah. That's a big you're, part you're of it. You're an Instagram fiend. I'm addicted to Instagram. It's true. I'm, I'll admit it. Or, I'll admit Orin it. Sofer DP is your handle. That's right. Orin Sofer DP. Um, you can check it out. I post every day. Yes, you do. At the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I swear this isn't planned. Uh, no, no, it's absolutely planned. It's very planned. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just simple. It's just... Uh, no, it's good, man. It keeps it simple and it gives me a little daily goal. Yeah, dude. Uh, and uh, yeah, and it's fun. It's fun to share work like that and to just interact with the community. Yeah. That's the best part of it. I tell you, I, I it's funny. I had this because Ryan Booth sat down about a year ago now and we were talking uh, at some point later and he and was I just like, had drinks with him last week. Awesome. Because he's in New York now. He's he, a, like, he lives a couple blocks. Yeah, yeah. He lives. He, he's, he's nearby. He's, he's nearby. nearby. So like we won't say where so that the stalkers don't. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> don't it, come it, find him. <laughs> 
somewhere in the uh, northeast of uh, the United States. Somewhere in the United States. No, yes. so, um, <laughs> but it was interesting because he was like, you know, if, if we had sat down three months later after we sat down, like the whole conversation would have been different. And I'm sure the same will be said for you like a, a year from now or something. So uh, at some at some point in the yeah, future. We'll see. We'll see. Um, we'll see how your plan's going. We, we will. Check maybe, in with me. Maybe uh, after like a big feature, we can kind of do like some sort of a uh, breakdown of it and talk more specifically about like a, one certain project. Or that'd be like great. That. That'd, that'd be, be great. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking for that feature, by the way. So Hey, find it. Yep. Shoot it. Mm-hmm. Be very successful from it. And then you'll come sit that down with me. Done. Easy. Great, man. Easy peasy. Thank Great. you. All right, thanks. Thanks so much, dude. Yeah, this is super fun. Yeah.